0: Here's your fun fact of the day, 78% of the cities are made up. <laughs> welcome to the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. It's statistics, not statistics, You know what, don't make fun of me because I can't say st- stupid words with seven S's in it, alright? Anyway, welcome back to the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. My name is Isaiah Leininger, joining me today, as always, is my good friend, Walker Howell. And today we have a returning guest on the show. Welcome back, Edison Boggis. Howdy, good to be back.
1: On this uh, lovely day,
0: it's a great day outside, great day to be talking about. Not today, the thre- Saving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, regardless, it's a good day to be talking uh, with some good people about the good God that we serve. Uh, Edison, what was the episode that you uh, came on earlier?
1: Uh, I was on the uh, baptism episode. Uh, it was really a lot of fun. I enjoyed doing it. Um, yeah shameless plug go watch it absolutely listen to this episode though. Yeah,
0: listen to this episode then go back and hear what else Edison has to say on the topic of baptism and and, uh, that was like he said a really good episode Mm -hmm. in the midst of season 3 but here we are in season 4 where we're looking at apologetics issues we're looking at things that people will try to attack to disprove God disprove the scriptures those kinds of things and with this one this is a topic that may not as mentioned as it should be, especially within the church. It's something that we don't talk about enough, in my opinion, and that is the deity of Christ. And, of course, before we can jump into the episode with any depth, we have to define our terms. So, first of all, who is Christ? Well, Christ is another name for Jesus, who we be, believe to be the Son of God. And that's where the deity of Christ comes into play, because as Christians, we believe that Christ is deity, that he is divine, that he is the Son of God. Uh, and that's what, that's what the word deity means. Divine status, quality, or nature is the definition that we found. So that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about, you know, and, and look at the, the question, does the Bible prove that Jesus is deity? Does the Bible prove that Jesus is the Son of God? And to help us understand this, uh, the first thing that we want to talk about is the idea of liar, lunatic, or Lord, Edison? Do you want to go ahead and hit that off for us? Uh,
1: okay, so um, one thing that uh, was often in the first century uh, was people to is when people claimed to be the Messiah. The Messiah was something that had been around for hundreds of years at that point. Um, in Jewish lore, it had been prophesied about in the Old Testament in books like Isaiah and many of the prophets. So the children of Israel knew the Messiah was coming. They just didn't know who he was or where he was coming from exactly. And so um, there were many people who would try and claim to be the Messiah. And we know this from Scripture as well when you look in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 5. Here, um, many of the Jewish teachers are trying to decide what to do with the apostles and they've already thrown them in prison a couple of times at this point i think and they've been throwing them in prison a lot and um uh <clears throat> uh gamaliel uh one of the um wise teachers gives them this advice and um he basically tells them uh, i'll just read the passage in verse 23 uh we've um or excuse me not verse 23 33 33 sorry uh, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, uh, Thudis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and, of, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people, some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. So um, basically what we can read about in this passage Uh, is that there were already some people before this who had um, come about and claimed to be the Messiah, uh, Judas and Judas the Galilean. So this isn't—and Judas especially is interesting, as that was coming around the time, I believe, of Jesus' birth as well. So it's very interesting how these things came up, and so it wasn't uncommon for someone to claim to be the Messiah— and so many people wondered if Jesus uh, was truly the Messiah or just like one of these other teachers. However, we're intending to show that there is evidence that he was indeed the Messiah and that scripture provides it.
0: Something else that I found interesting while uh, thinking about this subject, uh, especially on the topic of that you brought up, Edison, about the fact that there are a lot of people claiming to be the Messiah— a big problem within the Jewish time or the Jewish thought at this time was that they didn't exactly know when the Messiah was coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see, we have a prophecy in Daniel chapter nine called the seventy weeks prophecy, and that prophecy is a little bit hard for us to really interpret because it, we're missing some context. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel, of course, was relaying this message from God to the ancient Israel, ancient Israelites. Oh, my goodness. Israelite. The Thank ancient you. Israelites. Yeah, today's is not my day. Anyway, he's relaying this news to the ancient Hebrews. That's a lot easier to say. And we're missing some background, some context. But what we can interpret, or at least what some people have interpreted this passage as, is the 70 weeks, a.k.a. the uh, 700 years, I believe it is, each, each week representing seven uh, seven years was when the messiah would come and people especially in uh jesus's time would look at that prophecy and and try and calculate based on you know 700 years when the messiah would come the problem is we don't know when the prophecy was written Mm -hmm. so the difficulty comes when you're trying to add 700 to something and you don't know what you're trying to add 700 to yeah and it wasn't just
1: seven hundred as well. Another believe was four hundred and ninety years. Mm. The seven years seventy times seven four hundred and ninety, which does get a bit closer to what we estimate to be the time of Christ. However, there's not an exact year thing there, so it's very confusing, not only for us but for them as well when they're trying to calculate that. You know, do they think it means four hundred ninety? In that case, that is somewhere around you know in the ballpark, give or take a hundred years of this time here in uh, the first century, or if it's 700 years, you know, they might be thinking, oh, this ain't coming for another two three hundred years. Right.
0: And so the point is that even though the Jews were looking for the Messiah, and that's why some people believed these men like Thutis and Judas the Galilean, they didn't know when the Messiah was coming. They had no idea. And I think that's why some people like Thutis or Judas the Galilean were able to deceive some, because of the doubt and the uncertainty surrounding the Messiah's arrival. And it's also, I think, important to remember, in
1: once again talking about this, is the context of the time for the Jews. The Jews were, at this point were desperate for the Messiah. They were underneath Roman rule. They did not like the Romans and were trying to do everything in their power to you know get out from underneath the Roman Empire. And so they were desperately hoping for the Messiah at this time, just with a promise of having their own nation again. And so it's understandable why some people would be able to lead them astray, especially if they're giving promises of, you know, grandeur and conquest, which is opposed to something, to some
0: of the things that Jesus taught. That's a good point. You know, going back to the the Acts 5 passage here, just to kind of help us summarize that passage, what Gamaliel is saying is that basically, you know, we've seen this happen, this kind of thing happen before. People will rise up claiming to be somebody, and then they're killed, just like Jesus was killed at the end of the Gospels. And every time this has happened, where someone rose up claiming to be the Messiah and was killed, their followers stopped. Mm -hmm. They didn't keep teaching about this man. They didn't keep prophesying about this man. They didn't keep going because their leader was dead. You You cut off the head of the snake and the body will lay there, as the old adage goes. But the point that Gamaliel is making is that, you know, if this is just another one of those false messiahs, then his followers will stop pretty soon. But if it's not, if this was the real messiah, then we're standing in the way of God. I I miss, I miss, uh, made a
1: small mistake there. I forgot to read verse 39. I'll go ahead and read that right quick. It says, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. These people, um, it's really wise advice from Gamaliel, not only practically, but also um, really strikes out and is very striking considering the general attitude of the Jews at that time had been very, very opposed and they were very much You know, trying to stomp out what they saw as heresy. And Gamaliel is like, whoa, if it's God, you're not going to be able to stop them, even if you try to.
0: And I think that has a really powerful point for us today in our discussion of the deity of Christ. I think Gamaliel, like you said, makes a very, very uh, wise point here, Edison. And the fact that he said, if this is from God, if Jesus was who he said he was, and he said he was the son of God then why is Christianity still around today, right? If, if Jesus was not who he said he was, then why is Christianity still around today? Why is it still so prevalent? Why is it still so popular? And I think that speaks to the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. Mm-hmm. He was the Messiah. He is the Savior. If Christianity had been nothing more than some man performing tricks and saying nice things to get people on his side then we would not have the scriptures, we would not have the Bible, we would not have a lot of our history, both as you know the church and throughout the world. Of course, we know that the church became very powerful, or at least some form of the, of the church became very powerful through the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And so if Christianity is based on a man who was not the Messiah, then why is it still around? Yeah. I think that's something that we have to consider when talking about the deity of Christ Mm -hmm. and something else that we wanted to mention. And we, we mentioned this a little bit already, but uh, there's, there's an idea out there called liar, lunatic, or Lord. Yeah. And basically it breaks uh, this down into three categories. There, there are only three possibility or possible options that Christ could have been. He either could have been a liar. He could have been someone just making something up, going, going along to deceive people, a false prophet, that kind of thing. Or he was a lunatic. He was absolutely insane. He had no idea what he was saying, and he convinced a bunch of stupid people to follow this crazy man. Or he was God. He was sovereign. He was Lord. And I think when we look at the Gospels, we can come to the conclusion that, first of all, Jesus was not a lunatic. No. We do not see Jesus acting strangely in the Gospels. We do not see Jesus' followers acting strangely in the book of Acts or, uh, you know, the, in Paul's writings or that kind of thing. Now, obviously, we are acting strangely in the sense of that we are acting differently than the world. Mm-hmm. But it's not strangely as in, I'm sitting there eating dirt. Yeah. I, think, I think we can clearly see from the Gospels that Jesus was not a lunatic.
1: And I think there's something powerful that comes from whenever the Pharisees would ask Jesus a question, would try to test him. We see that numerous times uh, throughout the Bible, uh, throughout Scripture. And in all of these cases, this would be the place where a lunatic or a liar would get tripped up. A liar, even if he is a very good liar... A liar would have a hard time keeping up the facade as long as Jesus would have had to, most likely three years, with getting constant questions from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and whoever was asking him. So that's... And then if he was a lunatic, most likely, once again, it would have been hard... I don't think it would have been possible for him to give the articulate answers and, frankly, the wise and smart answers. Because not only is, you know, Jesus making well-crafted statements that make sense. He's sh- eviscerating the most powerful religious thinkers of the day in argument. Like, that would not be possible for a liar
0: or a lunatic. At least, it would be extremely improbable to impossible. I, I completely agree. You know, like, like you said, every time that Jesus was confronted by these religious leaders or by his critics or whoever— they always left amazed. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that is very powerful to speak about. You know, at any time that his critics came up to him with a question, they always either left with their tail between their legs yeah. or amazed at Christ. And usually, if it, if it wasn't amazement, it was be, it was their tail tucked between their legs because they were too ashamed of the fact that Jesus had beaten them again. Mm-hmm. They they weren't letting that amazing power that Jesus demonstrated get to them because they had already made up their mind about him. Yeah. I think another thing that we definitely have to consider is how much Jesus went through. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned Edison, his earthly ministry was about three years long. And during that time, we know from the gospels that he had no home to sleep in unless someone invited him in. He had no food to eat unless someone helped him. He was a wandering nomad going about the region of Judea, teaching and preaching and performing miracles. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, like we have already discussed, he endured so much hatred and persecution from the Jewish religious leaders that they would attempt to stop him at every available chance. Yeah. And when that didn't work, when they tried and, tried and tried and tried and tried and still could not do anything to discredit Christ, they killed him. Mm-hmm. They sent him off to the Romans and said, this man needs to be crucified. The most agonizing form of death that has ever been created on earth. That's actually where we get our English word for excruciating. When we think of the word excruciating, we think of something that's unbearable. Amount of pain that is far uh, beyond anything that we've ever experienced. Mm -hmm. That's the death that they sent Jesus to. Mm -hmm. And Jesus knew that. He prophesied about that. Yeah. Why would he go through all of that if it was just a lie? And,
1: yeah, and, yeah, if Jesus was a liar, he was probably one of the stupidest liars to ever exist and have such a following. Amen. Because if you think about why, you know, he would be lying in the first place. He'd be doing it for two reasons. Either to get, it, get attention, A, or B, maybe along with that, to gain some sort of status in the society whether it's just, you know, status as a great teacher or status as, you know, you know, for money or whatever and all these things. And Jesus and a liar in Jesus's position would have backed out on numerous of occasions. Just, you know, backed out because, and, you know, you might be wondering, well, why would he? We see the example today. If you look at a con man or some sort of liar type. Um, then you're going to see that person when they're either presented with the questions that Jesus was presenting or, you know, especially faced with some sort of penalty, what will they do? They'll deflect. They'll back off. They'll deny. They'll do whatever they can do to preserve what little influence and power they had left. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus went through all of it and not only that, but he seemingly never was going after any type of power or any type of wealth or anything like that. He was doing, he was saving people and he was teaching. It's just simple as that. And like you said, living a very painful and um, honestly kind of sad life, if you think about it, considering all that he went through, you know, it just wouldn't be, it wouldn't make sense for him to be a liar and still be as good and, and still and still be
0: able to. It just wouldn't make sense. I really appreciated the, uh, the point that you brought up, Edison, about, you know, the again, we see, we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus performing these incredible signs, these incredible miracles, which speaking of, you should go listen to our episodes on the Holy Spirit and miracles with Lance Mosier. But anyways. Nice uh, plug. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the point is, with these miracles, Jim, Jesus demonstrated incredible power. And uh, one of these miracles was the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we see one account of this in John chapter 6. And we see, uh, you know, Jesus, he's, he's teaching and he's traveling and the massive crowd is following behind him. He's performing miracles, he's teaching, and th- this crowd is stuck to every word. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're following him, But and then Jesus you know, stops and thinks and says, You know, these people are probably hungry. Do mm-hmm. we have any food that we can give them? And all that they find is a, a little boy who has five small loaves of fish and two small, uh, two loaves of fish. Uh, five loaves of bread and two fish.
1: Oh, fish loaf.
0: Yeah, fish loaf, exactly. Uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. Not enough to feed a crowd of 5,000. And I believe it says that it's just 5,000 men. That's not counting women and children. So, massive crowd here. Very, very small portion of food. And what does Jesus do? Well, he takes the loaves and he starts breaking them out and he starts passing out the fish and we see in John chapter 6 verse 13 that they gathered up the leftovers and filled 12 baskets full of the leftovers that is an incredible miracle that is an incredible sign that Jesus had power from God Mm -hmm. and like you said Edison people today if they had the ability to do something like that they would use it for selfish motives they would use that to gain money or power or status jesus didn't do that jesus never wanted it to be about power or uh you know having a throne on earth yeah you know when we when we uh, and you mentioned this earlier as well edison you know the jews were looking for a messiah to not come in and save them from their sins but to save them from the romans to kick out the Romans and to bring back the nation of Israel and its prosperity that we see in the Old Testament under men like David and Solomon. They were not looking for a spiritual Messiah, but a physical general to lead them in battle against the Romans. Jesus very easily could have started an uprising against the Roman government. Mm-hmm. It would not have taken much convincing to get these Jews on a... you know. Up in arms. I mean, one of his apostles is Simon the Zealot, a a man who's part of a group who was furious about Rome and would do anything in their power to get them out of Jerusalem. But yet, here in John chapter 6, Jesus doesn't do this miracle and perform it for the the chance to become king or the chance to have power or status. Look look at what he does in John... Look at what he does in John chapter 6 and verse 15. Again, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We see here in this passage, these people were so crazy about Jesus. They, They were so passionate about Jesus that they were going to basically kidnap him and set him on the throne. And Jesus saw this and backed out. If Jesus wanted power, if Jesus wanted status or wealth or a position, that was the time to get it. The people were coming by force to put him on the throne. If Jesus was simply on the earth as a man to deceive and to trick and to lie to people about who he was, then why would he have not taken that opportunity right there?
1: Perfect opportunity. Um, One of my favorite stories about a a miracle Jesus performed that I feel like really will help us with this discussion and um, just I think really makes a powerful point as well is Jesus healing the centurion's servant. And I love especially the way Luke puts it. This is one of my favorite stories. I'm actually going to be teaching on it uh, this Sunday. And basically it says, starting in verse uh, um, – we'll just go ahead and pick up in uh, verse 6. Basically – uh, for the context, Jesus is approached by some Jews who are telling him, "Hey, you need to help this this centurion guy. you know, he's you know a friend of the people, you know, they say he's worthy to be helped, which is you know an entirely uh different lesson right there um and all this stuff, and they hype him up, but then the centurion sends servants and they um tell him this. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel I have, have I found such faith. And when those who had re- had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. That story encapsulates just how powerful Jesus truly was. Hey, he's so powerful that a centurion, a Gentile, someone who did not grow up with the prophecies of the Messiah you know, was, if anything, on the other side, quote-unquote, being a Roman centurion, he recognizes, perhaps better than most of them, that Jesus is a powerful, is powerful, and is a man who's set under authority and a man who has authority. And so, therefore, he tells him, you don't even have to come under my roof. Just heal my servant from here, and he will be well. And Jesus does it. And that's amazing, and it's incredible to think about how that even when they were far away jesus didn't even have to touch them he didn't He didn't even have to see them he could still do it and i really think that speaks to the authority but it also separates jesus from the rest of the pack you know you think about people who have claimed to you know work wonders throughout the ages they could not they wouldn't even attempt to do something like that it wouldn't it wouldn't be a smart move you know a story i think of a lot um, um, one of our uh, friends, an elder, tells us the story. This elder has a friend. And I'm trying to remember the story exactly right. I believe he has... I believe he's in a wheelchair, if I recall correctly. Uh, he has some sort of physical disability, uh, which is noticeable, like you can tell. And so what this guy would like to do is he would like to show up to events where healers would claim to come and heal people. And what this guy would do is he would you know always be super energetic that he wanted to be healed he'd be like oh go me 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 heal me please heal me please and you know the people you know seeing the very obviously disabled physically disabled man they would never try and heal him they wouldn't even get close to him because they they couldn't and i think that further shows that Jesus was not a liar because he's put in some difficult spots. You know, whether it's healing someone from far away or feeding 5,000 or raising the dead, especially that one, Um, whatever it is, Jesus doesn't shy away from the easy miracles, if you will. He accomplishes the impossible, and it's always emphasized in Scripture. It is here in verse 10 that the servant is always healed and it's always permanent. It doesn't change after a bit. There's no psychological trick or anything like that. It is a 100% healing. And I feel like those examples greatly speak to just how powerful Jesus was and how he was not a liar or a insane man because neither of them would be able to pull these things off that he does.
0: Exactly. Jesus did things that no one had ever done before and no one's ever, ever, ever able been done they can't do it now my goodness i'm sorry the point is jesus was able to accomplish these great miracles because he was from god god gave him that power that god gave him that authority to be able to do these kinds of things And so edison i think you put it very well jesus could not have been a liar he could not have been a lunatic that means that he has to be lord but he's not just, like we, as we pointed out, he's not just a physical Lord. He is the Son of God. He is our spiritual Lord. I want us to read the first couple verses from the book of John. I think John really helps us understand this, the concept of the deity of Christ. He spends a lot of his gospel talking about it. But especially here in the beginning of, of his book. The Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verse 1, starts off by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I want to stop there real quick. So John here, he says, In the beginning, so before time began, I think we can uh, understandably say that this is a reference back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning was the Word. Well, who's the Word? We don't know yet. But we do know that the Word was with God. Not only that, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and helped create everything. All things were made through him. And we also see that in him, in the Word, was this life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verses 6 through 8, he talks about John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, who came down to bear witness about the light, we see in verse 7, that all might believe through him. Verse 8 says that John the Baptist was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then in verse 9, he jumps back and says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. So, here in verse 10, where John says, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, John adds a little detail there for us. Not only was the Word in the beginning with God, not only is the Word God, but the Word was on earth. The Word was the light of all men and walked the earth that He helped create. Now, verse 11, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here in verse 14, I think we get a big, big clue as to who the word is. Because the word became flesh. The word walked the earth. And not only that, John says that we have seen him. He is the son of God and we have seen him. I think that's starting to help us understand who the word is. Well, let's keep reading a little bit. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So here we get another hint about the word's identity. We see that John the Baptist was not only a witness to him in verse 7, but here down in verse 15, we see a quote from John the Baptist. "This This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Again, going back to the idea that the word was with God, In the beginning. Here we go, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Word is Jesus Christ. So, what does that mean about Jesus? What does that tell us? Well, we see that Jesus was in the beginning, he was with God, and he is God. He helped create everything. He is the life of all men. He is the light that shines in the darkness. John the Baptist bore witness about him. His own people did not receive him, even though he was in the world that he made. And he became flesh and dwelt among us and brought grace and truth to a people who had only known the law of Moses. I think when we take this section of of scripture And match it up with what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels, it's 100%. It's a side-by-side comparison. These are the exact same things. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the Son of God.
1: And a big, another uh, passage in the book of John that I thought of uh, while you were saying that was in John chapter 8. And in that passage, Jesus is in a lengthy argument uh, with the Jews, uh, especially the Pharisees, most likely. And in that, you know, they're getting in this huge debate and whatever about, you know, Abraham is our father and blah, blah, blah. And they're just, they're getting in this debate. And Jesus invokes I am. Now, um, I am, of course, is is what God refers himself to in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. Huge, huge. It doesn't seem like a huge deal to us. But in the time of the Jews, this was a huge deal. I Am was the name that was given to God, Yahweh. The Jews held it in such um, sacredness that they would not even fully spell it, basically. They were afraid to because they were afraid of taking the Lord's name in vain, so they wouldn't even spell it. Usually they do some sort of abbreviation. So this was huge. No one would dare claim, you know, would even claim that. But in this passage, Jesus really explains that he is of the Father, he is of the I am, which would be which once again is something that no person really had claimed up in Scripture. You know, even the prophets who did some signs and miracles from time to time, they never claimed anything like this. And I think it's significant that Jesus claims to be I am. He claims to be of the Father, the Son of God and is still able to do the things that he does. Is still able to perform the signs and wonders that he does. If Jesus was just some sort of prophet or some sort of man, he would not have been able to perform those signs and wonders. And that goes back to what Gamaliel said in Acts chapter 5, because he basically you know, says this, this is of man, then it will fall apart. If it's of God, it will endure. You won't be able to stop it. If Jesus was just a man and had claimed that, even if he was just a prophet of God— he would not have been a prophet of God any longer after saying that. That would not have... It wouldn't have worked. He God would not have found them in his will. But only someone who claims to be I am and still able to do those works, that is more evidence that Jesus is the Messiah.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think we can clearly see from these passages and others, such as uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I don't think we're going to take the time to to read that right now, but that is a beautiful passage that uh, adds on to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Mm -hmm. He is God's son. He is the Messiah. He is our Savior. And that carries a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. Those aren't empty terms. Those aren't just words that we will throw around. Now, maybe in today's society, we've gotten away from that. We, we you know, we'll use the word savior. <coughs> Bless you. We will use the word savior sometimes in a, in a secular concept or concepts. And I think that really takes away the meaning sometimes because we, we maybe use that word a little flippantly, so to speak. But the, the word savior carries with it a lot of weight, and yes, you can, there can be a technically physical Savior for you if you're you know, trapped in a fire and a fireman saves you. Technically, he is your earthly Savior, but that is just for a moment. Right? Even if that fireman carries you out to safely, safety, you could die on your way to the hospital and the ambulance. There's no guarantee that you'll be safe permanently. But Jesus... Because he is our spiritual savior, we know that he can protect us and that he can save us from what is spiritually attacking us. And that is, of course, sin. And so we have to ask the question, what does it mean for us because Christ is our Lord? What does it mean for us because Christ is the risen savior? And I think that's a question that we have to consider in this topic. this topic. Mm-hmm. Yes, talking about you know the deity of Christ is important, but what's maybe a step above that is what does that mean for us now? Mm-hmm. Now that we've proven that Jesus is the Son of God, according to the scriptures, what does that mean for us today?
1: And I think one thing is just trying to comprehend the fact, and I think one reason why it means so much for me at least, is the amazing fact that because Jesus is God, that God would be willing to lower himself to the form of a man and live among us and suffer as we did if you look throughout history if you look throughout the various mythologies and creeds that have come that people have tried to come up with to explain the world the gods of those mythologies would never do that because they're basically they act like man does basically they act like man does they you know, are selfish oftentimes. They're oftentimes cruel. They make mistakes. They do all these sorts of things. One thing I always think of is, the re- is Greek mythology. Uh, I always like studying Greek mythology. And what you gather pretty quickly is all the Greek gods were absolutely messed up. I mean, just plain and simple. If you read some of those stories, they're always attacking each other. They're always fighting each other. There's always poor mortals getting in the way and getting, um, you know, uh, smited, smitten down. I don't know what exactly the vocabulary would be there. But basically, and it's amazing both for the people of the time of Scripture being written and for us, the amazing thought as the actual God, someone who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all all these incredible things— would come down into the form of a man for the time of the first century. This must have been an incredible thought for the Gentiles. You know, the Jews had gotten kind of a taste of it, obviously, you know, being in the Old Covenant. But for the Gentiles, who were used to growing up in an uncaring and unsafe world, with uncaring and unsafe gods, quote-unquote, and then they hear this gospel about... This God, who loved humanity and loved them so much that he would come down and be one of them, so he could suffer as they did, could be as they were, and made like them in every respect. Uh, one Bible verse that um, really um, helps solidify this is Hebrews chapter two verses 17 and 18, where it says, "Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect." So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And we'll get to that second part there in a second. But it's amazing that he was made like his – like us, his brothers, us being humanity, was made like them in every respect – And that he would be willing to lower himself to that. And it's incredible to think about that for us today as well. That, you know, when we see all the chaos of the world, you know, when we see all that goes wrong, all the violence, all the crime, you know, all of the mean people out there who, you know, are selfish and cruel and all those things. And it's so easy to get caught up in that. And for us and for us to truly think nobody cares. Nobody knows me. Nobody cares about me. No one cares, you know, if I, you know, was alive or dead or whatever. And it's so easy to get caught in that time into that thought process. But out there, there is a God who not only cares about us, you know, from on high, but has lived it, has suffered it, has experienced all of it, and that he lived through all of that so not only can he be like oh sorry sorry that you know life's rough right now he feels that he empathizes with that and can help us spiritually when dealing with those things because he did as well you know the world hated jesus um you know the world hated jesus's followers and he suffered that in fact frankly he suffered worse than probably any of us have ever had we talked about a little bit ago how painful the crucifixion was so it's just, it's, that's one thing that I think of a lot is just how amazing it is that the all-powerful, all-knowing God cared about humanity enough to save humanity and to become a man and now can sympathize with humanity as well.
0: To add on to that, not only did the almighty, all-powerful God send Christ down to the earth to suffer as we suffer, to be tempted as we are tempted. But consider the state that we were in before he did that. Uh, To help us understand that, I want to read Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Uh, Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So that's one thing right there. Before Christ died on the cross, we were ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul says we are we are, ungodly, we are sinners. But then verse, uh, verse 9, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we are ungodly, we are sinners, and we are enemies of God. That's the people that Jesus came to save. That's you and me. Jesus knew all the things that he would have to suffer, and he went through it anyways, even though the people that he was doing it for were the same people who were nailing him on the cross Mm -hmm. and the same people who continue to drive those nails into his hands every time they sin. That's you and me. Mm -hmm. For the right time, Christ died for the ungodly.
1: It's, It's truly incredible to think about and just like you said, the fact that Christ would lower himself to that point that he would suffer in every way as we had suffered to to do all that and and like i said it's hard for us to even imagine that you know i would be going i would go ahead and say pretty confidently that no human would ever do that they just wouldn't no we wouldn't have the strength to do it and the fact that god did that and only a sacrifice like Jesus would be enough to atone for the sins of the world. You know, we read about how, you know, in the old Testament, the Israelites had to sacrifice, you know, bulls and goats in order to briefly atone for their sins, but it wasn't even enough there. It was just, it was kind of like putting a, um, it was kind of like putting a band-aid on a gangrenous wound. You know, it was just, it wasn't enough, but then Christ came and cleansed all of that. The ultimate, um, save all. And, well, something else that Hebrews points out, Hebrews chapter 2, I said we'll get to it in a second. For in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus lived as a man in every respect. He was hungry. We read that. He was thirsty. Read that. He had to sleep. He slept a lot, in fact. Read that. He suffered. He felt pain. He did all of these things. And That includes as well being tempted. You know, we read about in the gospel, you know, how Satan himself came to tempt Jesus. But when we're being tempted as well, you know, we go through temptations in this life trying to live as Christians, and in that we can have the remembering that Jesus understands that temptation because he went through it himself. Like I said, he has that empathy for us. He not only is like, oh, sorry, you know, tough going there, bro. He felt it. He lived it. He knows what it's like. And so when we're going through temptations, when we're going through hard times, when we're suffering, Jesus is able to help those in help us in those times. And that's just another significant thing about the fact that him being the son of God, he has the power to do that, but he also that he would want to do that because of his nature.
0: It seems almost foolish, right? Mm-hmm. It, it seems almost stupid that... that... God would send down his son to save people who re- reject him at every turn. Yeah. I was I was listening to a lesson that a friend gave recently on the parable of the tenants in Mark chapter 12. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to take the time to read that passage. I would suggest going in and looking at those first couple of verses in Mark chapter 12, but the basic plot of the parable is there's a rich man who owns a farm and he leases the farm out to workers and goes on his way, uh, leaves town. And the work, the job of the workers was, of course, to harvest the fruit. And eventually, the owner of the field sent a servant back to collect his portion. The workers would get to keep most of it, and and the uh, the owner would get the rest. But we see in this parable that when the owner sends a servant back to collect what his what is his what is rightfully his. The workers beat up the servant and kick him out and so the master sends another servant and the same thing happens and the master sends another servant and this time they kill the servant mm-hmm. and on and on and on and on until finally the master says maybe they'll respect my son so he sends his son and the work the wicked workers take the son and kill him as well mm-hmm. and we recognize in this parable especially for mark chapter 12 and verse 12 that god is is representative of the owner of this vineyard. And the Jewish leaders, the Jewish forefathers, were the workers. And the servants that the master sent to the workers were the prophets. And we see that they rejected the prophets time and time and time again. And that's why they ended up in Babylon. That's why they ended up in Assyria. That's why they ended up in Persia. Because they kept rejecting God.
1: That's why they ended up eventually... You know, the temple was destroyed in eighty seventy. In many ways, this was foretelling that that would happen, that the Jews, you know, and I find it interesting. You know, we were talking in the beginning about the Messiah and, you know, who and, you know, how the Jew, many people claim to be the Messiah. It's interesting how the Jewish faith has taken that teaching now, you know, 2,000 years later. Some... And it's very interesting how they've kind of split at this point. Some are still hoping for that Messiah. Some are still waiting for that Messiah, believe it or not, even all these years later. And some have just given up completely on the idea of a Messiah, actually. And it's really amazing, and it's heartbreaking. And when that the Messiah already came and it was almost so obvious. And yet they're still missing that. And they're missing that piece it's just something interesting to think yeah.
0: about that's a good point edison i thank you for bringing that up but uh, uh, to go back and, and to finish the point here from mark chapter 12 now like i said i was listening to my friend give a lesson on this parable where the the master's servants were beaten and killed and finally the master's son was beaten and killed and i was sitting there thinking during the lesson why would the master send his son mm-hmm. he sent servant after servant, after servant. And he's seen the result. Why would the son be any different? Like I said, it seems foolish. It seems stupid to us. But God does not abide by our logic or our rules or our morals. And thank goodness for that. God, in, in this parable and in real life, sent his son knowing that his son would die because Without that sacrifice, as you pointed out, for Edison, without that sacrifice, we would be eternally lost. Because Jesus is Lord and because he sacrificed himself in a way that no one else ever could or ever will be able to do, that deserves our complete and full devotion, our complete and full dedication, worship and service and acts of life. Mm-mm. We are supposed to live according to God's rules because God has given us a way to escape our own poor choices.
1: Yep. And, you know, I this is actually one of my favorite parables for a variety of reasons. Um, but like I said, I'm kind of with you. I've always been kind of confused how people act in this. You know, just thinking of it purely from a human perspective. You know, you've got... These servants who are being killed, and like you mentioned, you think, Why would the father even put his son anywhere near these vine dressers? Why are these vine dressers still employed? That's another question I always asked. And you know, you even question the vine dressers, where they're like, You know, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. You know, and well, yeah, what sense does that make? <laughs> yeah, you're like, You're literally killing his son. Do you think the father would be like, Oh, yeah, here's, here's my money, <laughs> yeah. here you go, guys? No, but. And, you know, obviously part of that is because it's a parable, but I also think there's a small little nugget there that even when things don't make sense to us, it does make sense to God. And like, like we kind of mentioned, God doesn't think like us. God works on a completely different level and it, I'm thankful for it because, you know, although we're like, well, why is everyone, you know, acting the way they are in this parable? Frankly, I feel like you know god up in heaven would be like why are these people acting the way they do we don't act much better we don't we act very illogically we act sinfully we act wrongly frankly we're just kind of stumbling about right now hoping we don't mess something up and it's i think speaks to the point that god and jesus knew better and that jesus was willing despite our imperfections despite the stupid decisions we make he was still willing to make that happen
0: and that's the that's the gospel right there yep that is the, the good news, is that Jesus, despite all of the circumstances and all the hurdles, he came down and he saved us from our sin because he loved us. Mm-hmm. He is the Son of God and he is our Savior. Yeah. And like I said earlier, that requires a response. You're either going to reject Christ, reject all that he's done for you, slap him in the face and say, I don't need you. Are you going to say, because of your sacrifice, I'm going to live the rest of my life in service and dedication to you? Mm -hmm. That's the question that the gospel poses to everyone. And that's the question that we're asking to you at home. Are you willing to dedicate your life to Christ? Are you willing to remember the sacrifice that he made for you and to live that out and serve God all of your days to do that you first have to of course hear the gospel which is what you're doing now you're hearing about Christ you have to believe that this is true believe that he is the son of god the deity of christ is a crucial crucial aspect to christianity because if christ was not deity then why are we doing anything that we're doing you then next have to confess before others that he is The Son of God, that He is the Lord of all Lords. Repent of your sins, turn away from them, and be baptized in the waters that represent His blood that were shed on the cross for us. And after that, you must continue to live faithfully in a life of service and dedication and worship to God. If you are at any of those steps, we would love to be able to help you in any way that we can. We would love to be able to reach out to you and talk with you about the scriptures. Uh, there's several different ways that you can get in contact with us if you would like to talk with us about anything. Uh, we have an Instagram page, T-T-E-O-J underscore podcast. There's a Twitter under that same name. There's a Facebook group, or a Facebook page, rather, Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. We have an email, info at T-T-E-O-J dot com. We have a phone number. 731-439-9671. Thank you, sir. We have so many different ways that you can reach out to us. Please, please do. And if you don't feel comfortable reaching out to us, then please reach out to someone at a local congregation. Reach out to them and ask them what the Bible says. Reach out to them and and ask them for help in order to learn more about Christ, the fact that he is the Son of God and that he is the risen Savior that we serve today. If there's anything that we can do for you, please let us know. Let's go ahead and close this episode out in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord of all there is and creator of all there is, Lord, we're so thankful for you and for the sacrifice that your son made on the cross that he was willing to die that excruciating death for us even though we were sinners, even though we were unrighteous, even though we were your enemies because we had turned our back to you. Lord, There's nothing that we could ever do to repay you for that sacrifice, but Lord, help us to live a life of devotion and dedication to you, to put you first in our life at all times. Lord, we're so thankful for your son and for the fact that he is your son. Lord, we're so thankful for the love that you've shown to us. Help us to show that love to others. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.